Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome, all of you that are here in this space and all of you that are watching at home. The sermon this morning is entitled, As It Was in the Days of Noah. You know, how we read the Bible is just as important as if we read the Bible. It's not a matter of just reading the words and then something magical happens. Do you realize that some of the most well-respected Bible scholars in the world are actually atheists? Um, so just, just reading the Bible isn't enough. No, how we read the Bible it helps determine whether what we read is profitable spiritually. I don't want to simply read the Bible like I read any other book. First, I want to invite the Holy Spirit, right, to help to, to lead me and, and to guide me. And second, I want to read the Bible in the way that Jesus taught in our scripture reading for the day. Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This was the way of reading the scriptures that Jesus set forth on the Emmaus road. And it's the way that the New Testament apostles read it. And it's the way that the early church fathers and the first Christian theologians taught. And if we do it in the way of Jesus, the apostles and the early Christians, we won't be able to read from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament without finding Jesus there. Many Christians today, they think that they can read the entire Old Testament and they don't find Christ until they get to Matthew, which starts the New Testament. But that's not how Jesus taught us to read the scriptures. That is certainly not the way we should be reading our Bibles. It's not the pattern that the early Christians and the apostles gave to us. We've got to read the whole Bible as being about Jesus. He himself told us that the Bible does not bear witness to itself. The Bible never asks us to believe in the Bible. The Bible asks us to believe in the Christ that is in the Bible. Jesus said this in John's gospel, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. I think of the, the Pharisees in texts like this. And they read the scriptures, they memorized the scriptures, they knew everything was in there, but when it came down to it, what the scriptures were pointing to, what the scriptures were spotlighting, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they missed it. They missed it. So with that in mind, I'd like to go on a journey today and, and show how this can be done practically. We'll spend some time in the book of Genesis in order to find Jesus there. Now, we won't find his name in the book of Genesis, but that doesn't mean he isn't there. Just like you won't find the name of God in the book of Esther, but that doesn't mean that he's not present, that he's not there. Did you all know that? Did you realize that the God is not, that the name is not in the book of Esther? The only book in all the Bible where that isn't there. You knew that. I see you nodding. Yeah. 
today, we're going to find Jesus. We're going to find Jesus. And specifically, we're going to find Jesus in the story of Noah. To fully understand the Noah story, though, we can't just start with Noah. We need some context. And so we've got to back up a little bit and look at a man named Lamech, who lived three generations before Noah. In Genesis chapter four, Lamech said this, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. Now, many of you will remember Cain, right? The, the first son of Adam and Eve. He and his brother Abel, they became rivals, even to the point where Cain killed his own brother. God had previously warned Cain that something terrible, something evil was crouching at the door And Cain needed to overcome it, but Cain didn't overcome it. It overcame him. Cain failed to see himself as his brother's keeper and instead saw himself as his brother's competition. And this ultimately led to violence and the first murder. And by this action, Cain, he let loose an evil that had basically become uncontrollable six generations later. So Lamech comes along with his bloody limerick and says, I've slain a man for wounding me. I've killed a man for hurting me. And if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then mine is 70 times seven. And if you'd like to read a little bit more in in the mark that God placed upon Cain, you can find that in Genesis 4.15. Now, Lamech, he takes this idea concerning Cain And then he multiplies it by 70. What we're seeing here is the exponential rise of violence in the world before the flood. And this was the big problem in the world before the flood came. Exponential violence, almost like some sort of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome film. Just crazy. Everybody was fighting. Everybody was killing each other. The antediluvian world was a hyper-violent world. And we see that sort of mindset expressed in Lamech's bloody limerick. Now, the problem with disproportionate violence is later addressed in the law of Moses. And it's covered on three separate occasions, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But let's look at, at what it says in Leviticus. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Now, this may seem harsh, (laughs) but in the context of the time and what we just saw with Lamech, this is actually a step in the right direction. This is good progress here, not not finality, still got a ways to go, but some good progress And it's an attempt to put a damper on the violence that had just grown completely out of control. Lamech says, strike me and I'll kill you. You knock out one of my teeth and I'll kill you. You mess up my eye, I will kill you. But the law of Moses comes in and tries to restrain that a little bit. Uh, That's a little too much, Lamech. That's a little too far. 
In Moses' law, retaliatory violence, it's not forbidden, but it must be proportionate and never disproportionate. So you put out someone's eye and they can take your eye. You break someone's arm and they can break your arm. It's not great. But it's better than, if you look at me wrong, I'm going to put a knife in your back. Right? I mean, we can see it's, it's better than that. And thankfully, this isn't the end of the matter. Later in the big story, the Bible tells us that a new Moses will come on a new mountain and deliver a new law. And then we see Jesus going up onto a mountain and preaching a sermon talking about a new law that we refer to as the Beatitudes. He says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard this, right? You you, you good Jews, you know this is written in the law of Moses. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I love the authority that Jesus possesses here. You've heard the law of Moses, but I say to you. Now only one person can say something like that. The word of God can only do that. And Jesus is the word of God. Jesus made a change. He offered up the full vision. And we as Christians, we don't get to just pick and choose. I like it when Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But when it comes to vengeance and violence, eh, I like Moses' way better. As Christians, we can't say that. We don't have that choice. And it's because of this type of behavior that Christians, sometimes we can be guilty of, I say, flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. Flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. You see, 70 times 7 is first found in the Bible as Lamech's equation of retaliation that leads to a 70 times growth in violence and vengeance. Jesus turns it around into 70 times 7 forgiveness in Matthew 18. It's the time when Peter asked, how often shall somebody sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Wow. Jesus didn't come up with that, right? We saw this is coming from Genesis. That's when it's first spoken. But Jesus takes that statement, takes that mindset, and he inverts it. He blesses it. He takes something meant for evil and changes it for good. This is how Jesus saves the world. This is how he does it. Jesus realized that an eye for an eye, it leaves the whole world blind. Where does it end? Where does it end? Now, this isn't an abandonment of justice. On the contrary, true justice has a restorative vision not a retributive vision. 
The world's type of justice is about vengeance and payback. God's type of justice is about seeking for a way to restore wrongdoers into a right relationship with themselves, with God, and with all of mankind. God is asking, how do we restore them? How do we do that? How do we bring them out of their fear? How do we bring them out of their shame? That's what God is focused on. So in the pre-flood world, Lamech offers violent vengeance. Then Moses legislates a restrained mitigation. And finally, Jesus calls us to radical forgiveness. There's a progression here. Lamech says, if you strike me, I will kill you. Moses says, if you strike me, someone else will strike you. Jesus says, if you strike me, I won't strike you back. And in fact, I'm going to forgive you 70 times seven. Now this is heavy, right? Like this doesn't come naturally. This doesn't come naturally to us. What? Somebody does something wrong to me. We got to get back. We can't let them get away with it. A lot of stuff to wrestle with here. But we've raced a little bit ahead of our story. We've got to get back to the days of Noah. So Genesis 6, 11, it says this. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So Cain started something evil, and then Lamech came and multiplied it by 70. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So the sin that brought about the flood was violence. Violence. Now, I know because of movies and and stuff that we get all these other ideas in our head and start thinking about all these other lurid sins, but the fact is that these other sins aren't mentioned, but violence is mentioned twice. So if we read Noah's story and we make the sole focus on the animals going two by two or even on the great deluge itself, we're, we're kind of missing the point. We're not seeing the full picture here. A pastor once preached about this story, and he went on and on and on and on about how astounded he was at how much rain had to have come down. And he he spent all this time calculating how much rain was there, how much would have had to have come down per hour for 40 days and 40 nights in order to cover the highest mountains in the world. And he had all these heights and figures and numbers. This was his sermon. This was the sermon. And he came up with something like 362 inches per hour had to come down for 40 days and 40 nights in order to get the flood to where it was. Now, that is a lot of rain. Well, that's not the point of the story. (laughs) Not the point of the story. And I think he also maybe missed the part where it also talks about that water came up. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Wasn't just the rain, y'all. But it's not the point of the story. 
This story, it wasn't passed down through generations upon generations so we could treat it as some sort of science textbook and get an expedition together to go to Mount Ararat and find Noah's Ark. I know some people have done that. But the point of the story is to to grapple and to wrestle with the question of why was the world so dirty that it needed such a big bath? There's the question. And violence is the answer to that question. Now, if you remember, the reason we're looking in Genesis today is to find Jesus in the story of Noah. So we're going to ask some important questions here. We're not going to ask if we can really fit two of every animal into the ark or if 362 inches of rain came down per hour for 40 days. Did that really go about that way? We're going to ask, where do we find Jesus in this story? Where do we find Jesus in this story? Well, first of all, we find Jesus as Noah himself. We find Jesus as Noah himself. Now, don't get confused here. But I'm going to say the father of Noah is Lamech. The father of Noah is Lamech. But not that Lamech. There is more than one Lamech in the book of Genesis. More than one Lamech. This isn't the Lamech with the bloody limerick. It's not that one. This is a different one. This is Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch. This Lamech is the father of Noah. And in Genesis 5.29 says this, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us in our sorrow. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort, relief, and rest. It's sort of a a Hebrew pun. They They were quite good at that. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort, relief, and rest. So when the world has gone wrong, there is one in whom we are to find comfort, relief, and rest. And I'm going to say this. Are you suffering right now? Are you suffering a time of sorrow, pain, confusion? distress. I know a lot of people that have struggled over the past year and a half. It's been a difficult time for multiple reasons. And I think that more of us are, we're we're feeling more stress than we might be aware of because we feel like we just sort of got to put our head down and just make it through, just keep moving forward. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. I mean, all kinds of things that are happening simultaneously, things that are stressing us out, and we know that we just have to deal with it. We got to keep moving. We can't afford to crumble under the weight of it. We've got to find a way to function. And so a lot of this stress and anxiety, it just gets internalized. It just gets internalized. And this is why many of us feel so on edge So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we've got to come to the one that we know can offer us comfort and relief and rest. Dear friends, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. 
This is what it means to find Christ throughout all the scriptures. I can come to Genesis and I can learn that Noah's name in Hebrew means comfort, relief, and rest, but I know who it's really pointing to because Jesus said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when life is too much, too hard, too heavy, too complicated, and you're just plain old too tired, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And I mean, really come to Jesus. You might be asking, Pastor, how do I do that? (laughs) Pastor, how do I do that? Just sit with Jesus and say, here I am. Here I am. You called me to you. Here I am. Read those three verses that I just read from Matthew 11. And imagine that Jesus is saying those words directly to you, speaking to your heart. Whatever you're facing, just say, Jesus, it's too much. It's too heavy. It's too hard. It's too complicated. And I'm just plain too tired. But I'm here. Help me. Do that. Just try that and see what happens. Just do that. And maybe, just maybe. I feel feel like I need to say this. I feel like that there is somebody here in this room or somebody watching online that needs to hear this. I think somebody here needs to quit reading the Bible, just searching for all the answers, and instead read one book for a while. Just one book. You've got 66 books within that Bible, and I'm gonna ask you just for a while to pare it down to one book. Go to the Gospel of John and just spend some time there for a while. Take it slow. And don't go in looking for all the answers or trying to prove people wrong, but just go there and look for Jesus. Allow Jesus to lead you to Jesus. Come to Jesus and hear what he says. Present yourself to him. I might as well be honest. You can already read your mind. He knows what's on your heart. Just come to him and be honest. Just read it slowly, not in a hurry. This world is already too fast. That's part of the problem. <laughs> Let the gospel of John point you to Jesus and believe that Jesus is there to comfort you to give you relief, and to give you rest. I think that's good, good counsel for somebody here. Okay, so we found Jesus in the story of Noah as Noah, the one who brings comfort, relief, and rest. But we're not done with this story yet because we can also find Jesus in the story as the flood itself, believe it or not. We can find Jesus in the story as Noah, but also as the flood. This is exactly what the apostle Peter does in his first epistle. Peter sees the flood that cleansed the world as a prophecy of our baptism in Christ. He writes like this. 
When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There was also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an excellent example of how the early Christians and the apostles read the Old Testament. In the story of the flood, Peter sees God not destroying the world, but baptizing the world. In the flood story, Peter now with the lens of Christ. And this is the lens that all of us Christians should be going to the Bible with, with the lens of Christ. Peter sees God not destroying the world, but baptizing it, cleansing it. And just as the flood in Noah's day cleansed the world of its corruption, so baptism cleanses us of corruption and a self-accusing conscience. Anyone here have trouble with your conscience? I mean, the con- your conscience can be a good thing. But sometimes it's just like, okay, I hear you, I know. Where, where's the mercy? Where's the mercy from my own conscience? This passage talks about being saved from that phenomenon. We're saved not because we're good enough, not because we've convinced ourselves that we are saved, but we're saved because we're in Christ. And as Romans 8 puts it, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And baptism is that objective landmark, that symbol that we can always point to when somebody says, how do you know that you're in Christ? Well, They said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they ducked me under water, and they pulled me up out of the water, and the Bible tells me that's how I know that I am in Christ. And this is where you can can be honest. I know I've messed up. I know I'm a failure. I know that I've committed all these sins, but I'm in Christ now. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. So in our baptism, Jesus, he drowns this guilty, self-accusatory conscience and instead renews our minds to the point when we sin, we're not just beating ourselves up and rolling around on the ground feeling sorry for ourselves, but now we are being drawn to our lifeline who is Christ because he's the only one that can help us anyways. We think we can help ourselves, but mm, we're just fooling ourselves. <laughs> you see, that's how you read the Bible through the lens of Christ. Now, I know it's hard. We're modern folk, right? We are modern people, and we want to grapple with the text, and we want to wrestle it down with our modern, historical, critical methods, We want to focus on the numbers and the figures. But by doing that, we make the Bible out to be just like any other book we read. Any other book. And this is where we get people calling God a monster. And them not being able to look past what they see as him just murdering the whole world. 
But no, we, we, we Christians, we read it differently. We come to the Bible and look at it through the And we say, my sin and my guilty conscience were drowned in my baptism. This is not something new. This is not something novel. This is not something modern. This is something ancient. It's how the early Christians were instructed by Christ, beginning on the road to Emmaus. And we see that with clarity as we read through all the apostles' writings in the New Testament. We just saw it in Peter's writings in 1 Peter. Now, as I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks ago, there are types and antitypes in the Bible. Types and antitypes in the Bible. And we need to make sure that we're not getting so caught up and so focused on the type that we miss the antitype when it comes along. That's what happened with the Jews. They understood the types. They had that down, but they didn't realize that they were simply pointing to the antitype, which was Christ. All right. So we find Jesus in the story as Noah. We find Jesus in this story as the flood. But more than Noah, more than the flood, we find Jesus as something else. And, and maybe, maybe you know where this is going. Maybe you've already picked up on this, but we find Jesus as the ark itself. Jesus is the ark. When Noah and his family entered the ark, they were in an old, corrupt world. And when they left the ark, they'd been transported into a cleansed world, a new world with new opportunities. There was an old, corrupt world, and it was no longer tenable. No longer tenable. Nobody's going to be able to live here anymore. And then the ark comes. They enter the ark, they go on a voyage, and eventually they get off the ark. And you remember this, this image of a dove, right, with an olive branch in its mouth. And they step off the ark, and all things are new. It's a new world filled with new possibilities. Jesus is the ark that carries us from the old world to the new world. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus is the ark that carries us into the new world. Right now, we are facing uncertain times in world's history. It's filled with violent rhetoric and violent actions. There's plenty to be fearful of. There's plenty to be disturbed by. There's plenty to be worried about, plenty to be uncertain about. And it seems like right now, any day, any moment, some hard rain is gonna fall. So what are we gonna do? What are we to do? I recommend that we enter into the ark of Christ and ride this thing out. Enter into the ark of Christ and ride this thing out for a while, this current storm. Maybe these things will get worse before they get better. But if you feel stressed, if you feel fearful, if you feel overwhelmed, then I recommend you get in the ark and ride this out for a bit. Forego the news, forego to the politics, or whatever it is that is simply adding more worry and anxiety to your life 
nothing wrong with admitting that there's a storm in your life and you just want to ride it out with Jesus for a while. There's nothing wrong with that. And if this message is speaking to your heart, if this message is speaking directly to you, then I just say, less Fox, less CNN, less Facebook, less YouTube, more Jesus. Get into the ark. Get into the ark. Take a break and just sail with Jesus for a while. Spend some time reading through the Gospel of John. Take it slowly. Quiet all the other noise and let Jesus talk to you because he's going to be speaking a completely different message from what everyone else in the world is speaking to you. And sometimes there's so much extra noise, we can't even hear him. But he's inviting you into the ark. He's inviting you in. And in closing, allow me to make one more Christocentric connection. Genesis 6.16 says this, you shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubic from above and set the door of the ark in its side. John 19, we read, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Jesus is the ark that carries the cosmos from corruption creation. Just as there was a door placed in the side of the ark for access to salvation, so the side of Christ was opened up so that we could go directly to the heart of Christ and be cleansed, be saved from the corruption, to ride through this storm safely in the arms of Christ. It might be a bumpy ride, But eventually, because of faith, we can believe that we will arrive safely to our final destination, and it will be a new world full of new possibilities, a new creation, no more sin, no more death, no more struggle. Amen and amen. Amen. I'm going to have a closing prayer now, but I also want to invite Rex Shepard, who's our elder in charge today, to come forward just stand at the, the foot of the steps. After the benediction, both Rex and myself, Rex will be over there, I'll, I'll come down here. We wanna be here for you. If there's a special prayer, a special request that you have, we wanna talk with you and we wanna pray with you. Let's have the benediction. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, this world is often scary and we often feel overwhelmed. But Lord, we are thankful that as we look through the Bible, through the lens of Christ, that we realize that Jesus is the one where we can find comfort, relief, and rest. Jesus is the one that washes away our sins and corruptions. And Jesus is the one who will hold us safely in his arms, close to his heart as we ride out this storm. Lord, may we not only take the invitation ourselves and come into the ark of safety in Christ, but may we also invite others to partake 
and find the rest as it can only be found in Jesus. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you would seal these commitments. And Lord, as we leave this place this afternoon, leave with us, walk with us, and remind us that you are always present. Lord, we love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.